questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad that you're here. And thank you to everyone who sent in your questions. As per usual, they are wonderful and different and super interesting to talk about, think about all that stuff. So let's start off with the first question. This question says, hi, Katie, why do I feel so much less inclined to do something when someone tells me or asks me to do it? Hmm. If my therapist gives me tough love, it backfires. But when I'm left to take action on my own unpressured, then I will get there. Also, for example, I might go to my mom's house with the intention of cutting her grass for her. However, if she asks me to do it, I suddenly become angry, internally angry, and don't want to. Why could this be? Now, there are two comments that um, are add-ons to this, but I thought this was really interesting. Now, first of all, we usually see this in children, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen in adults because I also fall into this camp. Um, It's something that I worked on in therapy. So I'll give you some therapeutic thoughts and insights and then my own personal experience. So we see it a lot in children and it's usually with children around the age of like teen, preteen, and it's done as a way to like assert ourselves and our independence and push back against boundaries. And it's pretty common. It's almost like a normal form because uh, something that I think is important for all of us to know that it's a healthy part of our development to do this kind of like self-assertion, independence, push back against boundaries. It's essentially our way of like building our own self-confidence and noticing what's available to us and not within our space and in our world, like what's allowed, what's not. It's part of just learning and development and it's incredibly healthy and just part of our plan. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because this can happen from a therapist perspective for a lot of reasons. Number one, it could be because when we were a teenager, we were parentified, meaning we never really got to like challenge and push back and assert ourselves because we were too busy taking care of other people. That can cause this, it can lead to this happening later in life because whether we want to admit it or not, we all need to do it at some point. And for those of us who weren't able to do it at you know our preteen teen years, we'll do it later on when we can, okay? So that could be one reason. Another reason could be that we were walked all over as kids, meaning that our parents never let us do anything. They could have been like helicopter parents or physically abusive, ruled with an iron fist, right? We couldn't do anything, couldn't push back. And so when anybody, as an adult, when anyone tries to, you know, tell us that we have to, or this is what we're going to do or any of that, we're like, absolutely not, right? We push back with force. And so that could be another reason why. And then there's part of the, from my experience, it was kind of a backlash of my people-pleasing behavior. It was almost like I couldn't find a healthy way to, it, it, like a healthy middle ground, I guess. Because if you guys don't know, I struggle with people-pleasing. I still often on like where I just don't like conflict. So I'll do things to just appease people, even to my own detriment. Like even if I don't want to do the thing or I don't like that person really, I don't want people upset with me. That's like bothersome. And so because I would do that. And then I was trying to stop doing that. I swung into this, like, how dare you ask me to do something? I'll do it only if I want to. And it's, it took me a while to kind of swing around until I found this like balance in the middle. Um, And so part of, part of your work on this is going to just be to be curious about your own 
origin for this. It could also just be a defense mechanism, right? We feel pressured to do things and that pressure causes us to shut down, hence us getting angry and not wanting to do it, right? That pushback. And so we're better off to do it on our own. Um, there could be a lot of different reasons, but I want you to <clears throat> I want you to be curious about it for you. Do you think you're a parentified child or people pleaser and trying to figure that out? Um, you know, were your parents like super authoritarian and didn't let you make any decisions for yourself? Do you feel like you never got a chance to do this? What what was it? You know, be curious. And let me know in those comments if anything came up for you or if there was something new, you know, that you want to share, something I missed, right? Because I can't get 100% of it right all the time, right? Now, there was a comment that said, as an add-on, what could a therapist do to work with this client? What kind of deep roots are associated with this behavior? Now, it would really depend on the patient. And what I would do is I would just call attention to it. A lot of work as a therapist is just softly calling attention to patterns that you see. So it'd be, I'd say something to my patients like, you know, I've noticed that when I offer you homework, you don't want to do it. And there's some pushback that I sense from you. Um, or, you know, when I give you this homework, you don't do it. But when you come to something on your own, you do. I'm curious about that, right? We'd have to just dig into it. Where's this coming from? And so I would bring it up and start talking it through and then would try to find the root. So through kind of like questioning, like not even in CBT, they call it like downward arrow questioning, which is what I was going to say, but that's not really it. Downward arrow really means like, um, let's say I'm like, well, what is, what comes up for you then? Well, then I think that if, if I did do the thing, then I'd be giving into them. Okay. So you gave into them. What would that mean? And what would that mean? And we just kind of track down, 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 down farther until we come up with kind of like a the deep false falsely held belief. Now we could do that kind of work, but I find sometimes with stuff like this, that could be too much too fast and that could cause us to shut down again. And so the questions would, I would try to make the questions be as the least triggering possible. So I'd ask things like, you know, I sense some pushback and what need to shut down. And does that make you feel powerful to be able to assert yourself? Or is it, um, do you feel like this part of your independence? I would ask questions kind of not necessarily leading, but soft, like that I understand, like this is a normal part of being a person, you know, let's be curious about why this is happening. Has this happened before in any other scenario? What was that like, you know, being curious about that. And then that would be the work I would purposefully not offer any homework. Um, I might even do what I call anti-homework, which is like, I don't want you to do X, Y, or Z and see what happens. Um, sometimes the, I don't want you to, will get the same result or other times it'll be like, I don't have to. Like I've, I had a patient before who was a super perfectionistic people pleaser type. And I told her I didn't want her to do anything. I wanted her to ignore what I said during session. And I know I said do that, but I changed my mind. Don't do it. And it was just kind of funny because that like anti-homework, it was like really hard for her to not try. But then I was like obeying order. And, you know, we talked about what that what came up for her and what, what that brought up. And so, you know, there could be a couple of different ways I go about it. And depending on whether there's trauma in the past and that's where this is coming from or parentification, you know, we would work through one of those things so that until you know, my patient started to feel better and we could find other ways to navigate around it or just acknowledge when it's coming up and move forward anyways. Um, but obviously it just depends on the person. Now, the last comment on this said, same, this is a behavior that I see mostly in children. Yes. Is it supposed to change in the process of becoming a healthy adult or does it just stay in everyone? And some of us have trouble controlling that feeling. Is it possible that this feeling is not always there, but our caregivers condition it? This is really interesting. So yes, it does happen in children. Like I said, it's part of healthy development. Now, technically speaking, 
in a perfect world, which none of us grew up in, we don't really, we wouldn't necessarily need to do this as an adult. Yes, we, I could see it coming up in like workplace scenarios or relationships, maybe where we have to kind of assert ourselves because people are trying to walk all over us, but it would be done in a more communicative fashion. Whereas when we're teenagers and stuff, we're in like early teens, we don't always have the language and we don't maybe know what's going on. And so we can push back with behavior because we don't know how to communicate. But as we get older, I always encourage people to use their words, you know, tell people at work, hey, you know, um, that that's not okay. You can't talk to me that way. You know, we're both adults and I would, you know, encourage, I would expect you to reach out ahead of time. You know, we can assert ourselves a little bit more adult-like. So those are my thoughts about that. Um, and it says, is it possible that this feeling is not always there, but our caregivers condition, our caregivers can definitely instigate it, or that can be the way that they engage with other people. Therefore, we don't have a good model. Like there's no one to, no role model to, to base our interactions with others on. Our parents might've been like super childish and lash out and like shut down and, um, you know, like stomp their feet and throw a tantrum. We could definitely pick up on that from them and think that that's like healthy, normal behavior. Cause that's all we knew, right? That's all that was modeled for us. We have no other uh, representative to show us a healthier way. And that's honestly where therapy can be really beneficial because having a therapist role play things with us, walk us through how things maybe could look more healthy, um, could really be beneficial and we can learn from that as well. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I don't think I was ever emotionally abused or neglected, but I still feel like there was something, some sort of childhood wound or dysfunction in my family that made me into the anxious, timid, and closed off person that I am today. I feel like there was lots of passive aggression with my dad and my stepdad, like them having nonverbal expectations. God, those are like I passive aggressive behavior. We all do it, but man, is it toxic and so frustrating. Um, then they'd get disappointed or annoyed when I didn't do what they wanted because I can't read their minds, right? They want me to take initiative and say things like, I shouldn't have had to tell you, you should have just done it. What? So now I always think people are upset with me, but not telling me because both my father figures do that instead of communicating. And I always feel like an inconvenience. For example, lots of times when I asked my parents to drive me somewhere, they told me to ask someone else to take me. They don't like going much out of their way. And I hate asking for anything because I don't want to bother anyone. Even though there was no abuse or neglect, I still feel traumatized and have trauma symptoms. Can you talk about this? I want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that this is emotional neglect. I know it may not feel like it because we downplay things a lot, but let's just consider for a moment what happened. You would get in trouble for things that weren't communicated to you. So we never knew what was going on. We never knew what was expected of us. We never knew, um, we never knew how to do things to get love or support from a parent because it was a constant moving target that we couldn't see, right? Because it didn't tell us. I think that's emotional abuse right there. Um, then they they would punish us for things that we didn't do because we can't read their mind. And then um, we also were neglected. They wouldn't even go out of their way to take us somewhere. They would never prioritized us. We never felt important. We never felt valued. All of which are very important things for a child to hear and feel. That is abuse and neglect. And I know it's hard sometimes for us to acknowledge it. And a lot of times when it comes to emotional neglect or emotional abuse, we downplay it because it didn't leave a mark. Well, it left a pretty big emotional mark, right? And that's really why you're having these trauma symptoms. Now, I can talk about the fact that we can we cannot 
We can feel like we aren't traumatized and still have trauma symptoms, but I'm just here to tell you that anybody out there who's thinking, oh, you know, I wasn't really traumatized, but I still have these trauma symptoms. You were traumatized. You've just downplayed these little T's, meaning smaller traumas. I know we think of, and when I talk about little T's just really briefly, if you hadn't, haven't heard me talk about this before, there's big T and little T trauma. Big T being something like I was in a car accident. I was like physically abused. I had this big event happen right? It could be one big thing or a bunch of big things, right? I, I was, uh, there was a drive-by shooting at my house and I had to jump in our, um, our tub. Like I was watching the news today and this poor child in the Ukraine was like, yeah, we're sitting in school and we hear gunfire and they just tell us to act like normal. I'm like, that's not good. And I, I feel for them. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to be, tra- they're traumatized. And so we can have these big events or we can have a bunch of small events that still can lead up to us having, um, PTSD or having a trauma response. And for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about when I talk about little T traumas, what I mean is that we often think of traumas as these big events, right? I was in a car crash or I was, you know, beat up by this, I was assaulted in an alleyway or some big event. I went to war, right? And these can be multiple large events. Like I was physically abused for years or went to war, you know, it could be long. There could be multiple traumas in those experiences, but there can also be little T's. So big T's being like, all it takes is that one large instance to lead to PTSD or to to cause us to develop PTSD. Or we can have these little T traumas, things like, um, I went through a divorce. I was emotionally neglected off and on as a kid. Um, I was bullied for a little period of time, or I went through a really bad breakup, or I moved a lot. There can be a lot of these smaller T's that we maybe wouldn't associate with trauma or think they're traumas, but they still are and they can still have the same effect on us. We just tend to minimize them or overlook them and move through life anyways. And that's what I feel like is happening here is a lot of times we'll think, you know, there wasn't any abuse or neglect, but I challenge you to to like look a little bit deeper, think a little bit more about it. If there was no abuse or neglect, why are we having these symptoms, right? If we looked at it from an outside perspective, would we have a different view? And chances are the answer is yes. And so I just really want you to consider that from a different perspective, because it sounds like you're kind of downplaying what happened to you and saying it wasn't abuse or neglect. And I'm looking at this and reading this question saying, yes, there was abuse and neglect. So I hope that helps. I hope that kind of makes sense of, you know, of what's going on for you and helps you be a little bit more kind to yourself and a little more validating because what you experienced was trauma. And I'm so sorry you went through that. And let's move on to question number three. And this says, hello, Katie and everyone. I've got a question about little traumas or little T's. This is sometimes your questions and the number of likes they get, just they roll right into one another. It says, why do little T's feel like not, quote unquote, not a big deal? Do you need to talk about or re-experience all the little T's? How do you know which ones you need to talk about in therapy as a patient and also as a therapist? Thanks for all your information and your help. Greetings from the Netherlands. Or, and I'm not even going to try to say it. Well, I can try, but it's going to be totally butchered. Grotech und Nederland. I totally butchered that. And I apologize to all my people from the Netherlands. Okay. So I thought this was a great question. Now, if you don't recall, I did a video with my friend, Dr. Alexa Altman. She's a trauma specialist. And I don't I don't even know which video it is that we were in together. Um, 
I think it was one of our first few, but when it comes to little T's and processing them, what they have found, and they being researchers in the trauma field, they have found that we don't have to go through each and every trauma in our life, big T, little T, whatever. We don't necessarily have to process through each and every one. Oftentimes when we process one, so the way that she talked about it is like, sometimes if we process a larger, meaning it doesn't mean it was a bigger event. It means it maybe holds more emotional charge for us, meaning it's more upsetting or even it just tends to affect us more today than it than other ones, right? So because of that, let's say, you know, we um, we experience that or we see we, we're dealing with that trauma all the time. So if we're trying to deal with that little T all the time, that's the one that we should start with. And that's not up to you as the patient. Don't worry. You might know and innately be like, this is the thing that's upsetting me. Most of the time we don't. And you can leave that up to your therapist because what we're going to look for is the trauma or traumas that we tend to uh, reenact or have flashbacks about the most, or maybe it's a pattern of behaviors that track back to this or the way that it's affecting our relationships. There could be a lot of different things we're going to look at to try to figure out which of these small T's or traumas rather, you know, we don't even have to say big or little, just the traumas in our life, which one or two or so of these are affecting us the most. And then those are the ones that we're going to focus on first, because what Alexa told me is that through research, we know that when you work on those ones that are the most active kind of in our life or the most disturbing, by processing those, a whole group of others that could be associated with that in one or multiple ways are processed at the same time. So it's almost like, in uh, I don't even know, it'd be like doing an exercise, let's say we're working out, doing an exercise that doesn't just target one muscle, it targets like six. And so that's what we're kind of looking for is like, what is that exercise we can do? What's that trauma that we can focus on that will like scoop up the most? And so we get the most bang for our buck, so to speak. And so that's something that you're going to have to kind of negotiate with your therapist and try to talk about as much as you can of the like kind of the groupings of what took place and what happened to you. Um, that's why I do trauma timelines a lot. And I've talked about it in my book, Traumatized, how important it is to do those. Because even if we don't want to talk through each and every one of them, we can put little markers that like, oh, something happened here. You know, this is kind of like when the bullying happened from a bunch of people. And then, oh, things happened here. This is when my parents got divorced, right? We can kind of mark them out. This is when I had to move schools three times in one year. We can put those things down. And even though we maybe don't want to talk through them in detail, we can at least be aware. And that can help your therapist better narrow out, narrow down like which one to work on so that we can get like, again, the most bang for our buck. Now, there was a question on the um, top of this that said, also maybe an add-on to this, I find it really difficult to explain my little T's as they feel so quote unquote normal to me on one hand. But there are also so many of um, my little T's that I find difficult to describe. For example, certain body languages and context as my memories are vague and they all um, they all add up or mix together somehow. I hope that makes sense. Also really curious on how to deal with this in therapy. Even more greetings from the Netherlands. Wonderful. Um, okay, so good question. Now, that's why I think trauma timelines are our way in. Sometimes it's hard, like you said, to put a language to it or context around what happened, but see if a timeline could be that way in because then your therapist can have a a better, a, a greater awareness of all the things that you went through, even if it's just little notes. Like I said, like I was bullied during this time or 
it's a time when I don't have very much memory, but I do know, you know, that my parents were fighting or, um, you know, I was going, they were going through divorce or I don't know, it could be any number of things that, you know, it's totally up to you. I'm just making up random scenarios. And then, you know, oh, this was when I had to move schools or and this is when I was assaulted at one time. Like we might just be able to plunk down a couple of things or a grouping of times when like, oh, I don't have much memory here. Not sure what happened, question mark. But we don't have to give it any context. We don't have to give it a ton of language. We can just say a little bit about what happened. Happened was it like assault? Was it bullying? Was it, um, you know, issues at home? Was our our parent drinking or doing drugs or something? You know, was there something we witnessed? Uh, any of those things you could plunk like plunk those down, and you'll be surprised how putting it on a timeline you'll know that when you put them down, it's going to be moved a lot because you will think that something happened at like, let's say age eight. And then we'll be like, oh my God, I was like 12, but this thing happened at age eight. And you'll want to move things around. You'll be like, no, 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 this happened before that. And so we just kind of shift them. And I think that that might help you kind of get in because like you're playing double Dutch with your traumas. And it's like, I don't know where to start or how do I mention? I can't even talk about it. And so it can feel all mixed together. And doing a timeline can just kind of help us make sense of what feels like chaos in our head. And so I'd really encourage you to do that and let me know you know, how that goes, because I really think that that is the best way. And then again, going back to my answer at the first part of this question, then you would try to find the one that had the most emotional charge for you, and you would want to work on that one first. Okay, cool. Let's move on to question number four. And this says, this probably won't get any likes, but I'm genuinely curious. Would you ever consider offering mini courses for therapists? I'm about to jump into the field and I have learned so much from you. Seriously, my professors are impressed by my knowledge. You just explain things so well and your insight is extremely helpful. I would absolutely pay for a mini course, maybe for starting therapists or offering tips on balancing an online presence to help those who can't get therapy while keeping things professional in the office, literally anything. Um, To be truthful, I'd never thought about it. When I saw this question come up, I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, I did, I like doing workshops. It's just, it's been, a, it's a lot of work for me. <laughs> Emphasis on the work and the workshop. Um, it's been a lot of work for me. And so I haven't had the bandwidth between the book and moving. And then um, we did that workshop about relationships, which is still available. You can watch the live streams and interact and download those uh, worksheets and honestly get just as much out of it. Um, I haven't done one since then. That was like last May. Um I guess May and June, because we did six weeks. But yeah, I mean, I definitely could. I guess I'd have to figure out like how long and what we're trying to do and what you think would be beneficial. I've done some CEUs, meaning continuing education units or courses rather for other professionals. Um, I've done a few of those, one about ethics, you know, and like boundaries and therapy and implementing those. And then another about like self-injury. But I think this would be a little bit different if I was doing it for therapists starting out. Um yeah, I mean, I'm open to thoughts on it and I'll definitely put it in like on my list of things to consider and try to prioritize and figure out, but I would definitely offer many courses. I, I guess I just didn't realize that it would be of interest to anybody. So thanks for the idea. Okay, let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie, can you talk about the consequences of getting the silent treatment from a parent? Ooh, neglect. I lived Uh, I live together with my girlfriend and I've noticed recently that isolating from her due to COVID is a huge trigger for me because it reminds me of how my parents used to withhold love and affection from me or stop talking to me whenever I did something wrong. Could that still affect my relationships today? You betcha. 
And if so, how can I deal with it? My girlfriend and I have a really have really good communication and I've asked her to always let me know when there's something going on, but when there isn't, how do I stop this thought spiral in my head? Um, so you're emotionally neglected. When parents withhold love or affection as either punishment or just because they never, you know, they were always like that. And that would be like, you know, <clears throat> again, back to that emotional neglect. Um, of course, it can be a trigger for us. And of course, it was trauma. Essentially, you were abused and that was it's trauma. And so I think the best way to deal with this is to first let your girlfriend know there's nothing wrong with telling her that, you know, hey, my parents used to give me the silent treatment and, you know, avoid me when they were mad or when I was in trouble. Instead of communicating or forgiving, they would just ignore. And so when we have to isolate or when, you, you know, for health reasons, you're ignoring me, <laughs> I find myself very triggered and it's, it's very difficult for me. And the truth about this is getting into therapy is going to be your best friend. It's going to be the best way for you to work through this because we have to dig into what kind of internalized messages came from this silent treatment, right? Did that, was that that you're not good enough? Is it that you're not important? Is it no one loves you? What came up for you? That's what we really, I mean, I know it sounds like you're, maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of it, but this is a big deal. And I think dealing in therapy to figure out like, what did I tell myself about those situations and like what happened? Because you're acting out of those now. So because that's why it's triggering because we have these messages in our brain about like, oh, when I'm ignored or when I'm isolated from others, it means I'm bad. Something's wrong with me. I did something wrong and I deserve this, right? Because that's that was their punishment. So I'd assume it's something around there and like, I'm never going to be good enough. No one's ever going to love me. I don't know what messages you tell yourself, but we have to spend some time to figure out what they are because in that, that's where we can start the healing because that's technically like the root of this. That's really, you know, what's still affecting your relationships is it's firmly held beliefs from the past that aren't true, but that our trauma and our experience told us was true. And so we have to find a way to argue back. And so that can be through, you know, noticing the thoughts and uh, challenging it with some bridge statements. It could also be around communication and like <clears throat> paving a new way in our relationships. Meaning that like, if you're, you and your girlfriend are able to talk through this and she's able to recognize when you're being triggered and like make a point of being like this. Remember, this isn't me uh, shutting you down or giving you the silent treatment. I love you very much. You're very important to me. This is about health and safety and just giving you some of those words of affirmation as we work to challenge that automatic thought that comes up or thoughts that are accompanying this isolation, if that makes sense. Okay. Now there's a comment on this says, to add on, my mom does this to me currently and it hurts my feelings so intensely. I only see the bad things about her until I do something she likes or wants and likes people pleasing. Oh, and it's like people pleasing magic. She carries on with me, jokes, venting about her day, complimenting my appearance, etc. as though we didn't have two to four days of zero communication. That is terrible. Worse yet, I find myself giving a really great friend of mine in undergraduate the silent treatment when I felt hurt by her, although we've mended things now and I apologize for my behavior. I know I've lost a deep friendship because of the hurt that I caused her. I'm afraid of ruining my friendships or potential relationships in the same way as I develop few but deeply intimate platonic relationships that hurt all the more when I cause separation. I'm currently in therapy and was diagnosed with borderline. I am 25. <clears throat> so, I'm very suspicious of your mother and 
sounds sounds like a narcissist. I'm not I'm not diagnosing her, but some of those things are very like the silent treatment. And then if you do something that people pleases her, then she jokes and then compliment. It's a very weird dynamic and very unhealthy. And essentially, my goal for you would to be to get out of there. Like you need to minimize your contact with your mom. I'm not saying cut her off by any means, but until you heal, until you have better ways to deal with her off and on, hot, cold, she could be a narcissist or she could be could, could be borderline. I don't really know. Um, there's some overlap in some of the symptoms and I only have a couple, you know, symptoms that I'm working from, but that relationship's super toxic for you right now and super detrimental to your mental health. And I would really encourage you to move out if you can or save up, like put a plan together to get the hell out of there because this constant silent treatment and this unhealthy dynamic between you and her is now affecting your relationships where you don't know how to have healthy conflict. Because I think that one of the problems, even my family didn't know how to how to have healthy conflict. My family was like, oh, we just don't fight. Nobody liked conflicts. It was like, la, la, la. And so I grew up hating it. And if people raised their voices, it was super triggering to me. I remember I had a really good friend, Jamie, growing up and her family was like a, they'd yell at each other and like fight out loud. And it wasn't that they didn't love each other or anything like that. It was just the way that they dealt with things. That's just how they were. And I did not grow up in that. And so being over at her house, I was like, oh my God. And I'd go home and tell my mom, I was like, they just yell all the time. They fight all the time. My mom's like, were they really fighting? And I would think about it. And I was like, no, I guess, I guess they were trying to decide on dinner, but it felt like fighting because their voices were raised and I don't like that. So anyways, um, I bring that up to say that like what you're learning is really unhealthy and we need you to be able to have healthy conflict because conflict is healthy. It's okay to tell someone that hurt my feelings and I'm upset with you. And for them to say, I'm upset with you. You did this. And to have this little scuffle where then we communicate what went on and how we feel. They communicate what went on for them and how they feel. We either compromise, we both apologize, and we move forward. That's actually a very healthy part of development and something that I had to put in some extra effort and work into and still not the most comfortable with conflict. I can tolerate it. I can sit in it and know it's going to be okay, but I don't like engage in it easily like other people do. And so anyways, I want you to um, get into therapy if it's available to you. If not, trying to find like a cheaper option online or if you're in school, a lot of times like I benefited from free therapy at Pepperdine in school all through undergrad and grad. And I don't think it ever cost me a penny. You guys was just part of my part of my schooling. Um, and so I'd encourage you to look into that if you can. Um, anyway, finding some therapy for a reasonable rate will really be beneficial because essentially what you dealt with was emotional abuse. And I think I suspect that your mom was either a narcissist or borderline or something like that. So overall, the fact that you're in therapy is great. I just realized I didn't, I didn't uh, read, even though I did read, it didn't like sink in that you're currently in therapy. And so I really think talking to your therapist about this and role playing out some healthy conflict and the diagnosis of borderline would kind of make sense, I guess, too, because my patients who are borderline, even though people might not understand this on the outside thinking, oh, I've had a borderline relationship and they, you know, we fought crazily people who are borderline personalities, who have borderline personalities or do not like conflicts, it's so painful, but then we can lash out out of that pain. And so it's like just really uncomfortable. So overall, we usually don't like it and we do can do the silent treatment um, as a result. But what I really think is um, 
you know, talk to your therapist about this and role play out some of the ways that we can have healthy conflict and how we can negotiate and talk about how we feel. And a lot of it's going to be that emotion regulation component mixed obviously with uh, interpersonal effectiveness. And those are two components of DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And if you haven't picked up that workbook, I have it in my Amazon store. If you go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, it's the green one from McKay and somebody else. I forget the other author's name, but it can be really great and beneficial because with some of those emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness skills, we can get this under control. Okay. Moving on to question number six, it says, hi, Katie, when I'm happy, I can't enjoy it. I instantly get upset and want to cry. And sometimes I hurt myself. Do you have any idea why this could be and how I could stop this? Just some background. I was neglected, physically, emotionally, and sexually abused throughout my childhood, but now have a safe and settled life. Thanks for all that you do. Your podcast helped me calm down each and every night. It's been a great help. Oh, I'm I'm so glad. Now, this is a great question because being happy can feel just as scary and uncomfortable as being sad or angry or any other number of emotions. And the reason for this is that when we feel happy or good or excited, we can think that something's bad is going to happen, right? The last time I felt happy or excited, uh, I don't know, then I, I, my parents got divorced, or then I lost that tournament, or then I was abused in some way, right? We can think that feeling safe, especially when we have trauma in our past, feeling safe and excited leaves us vulnerable to more pain. Does that make sense? It's like even by the, the, even the, the sheer effort, or I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, but even just the act of me getting excited means that I'm looking forward to something. And, you know, I, I feel all sorts of bubbling up and emotion and my defenses are down right? I'm not angry. Don't have my spines out if I'm puffer fishing. I'm not depressed. I'm not isolating. I'm not curling inward. I am open. I am available. I am excited. I am happy. That we can worry. Make, oop, I just touched the microphone. Sorry. Can make We worry can make us more vulnerable to pain and upset. And that's why you instantly are getting upset and want to cry is because that feeling of happiness is too vulnerable for you and means that pain might come. And that could be your history. And also I do want to throw in this caveat that it could be the, even if we don't, if we don't experience happiness very often, sometimes I have patients in the past who've, they get happy and then they're sad about the fact that they don't feel this way very often. And I know that can be like, what, why is my brain doing that? It's something that's foreign. We're not used to it. And then we're kind of sad about the fact that we're not used to it. So like, this is happiness. How am I not used to this? And it can make us kind of spiral into a depression. which I know is, you know, doesn't, I mean, it makes sense to me, but maybe for you, you're like, why do we do that? It's foreign. We're not used to it. We're worried about what this means. And it's sad that we don't have it because we know happiness is supposed to be a good thing, right? Blah, 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 all that judgment. Um, Okay. Now the way to stop this. Oh, and this person, obviously um, they have abuse in their background. So the trauma would be, like I said, you know, if we have trauma in our our history, it can be because that like quote unquote safety or security or excitement we can feel with happiness makes us more vulnerable to more abuse. And so we can get upset and and want to like, like stick our spines out again, right? Like how dare I let myself get be so vulnerable? That's not okay. Um, Honestly, the best way to stop this is to work with a therapist who specializes in trauma and to 
start working through, whether it's through somatic experiencing, meaning moving our body um, to move that ourselves out of that free state, or whether it's through EMDR, you know, the eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, or whether it's through traditional talk therapy, whatever works for you, working through that trauma will allow you to finally in the future at some point, enjoy happiness. But my goal for you right now wouldn't be for you to feel happy or safe. It would be for you to feel neutral. And the reason that we talk about that, and Alexa is the one that told me about this, um, is because happy can be triggering, like you're experiencing happy is triggering. And obviously sadness, anger, all those things can be triggering. And so we really just want to find ourselves in like the middle, in a neutral phase. And we can get to neutrality through doing something that's repetitive, like folding the laundry, putting the dishes away, coloring, something that's just very non-taxing, very neutral, very something I do every day kind of thing, like a ritual. Um, washing our face and taking a shower, things like that can also be kind of a neutral state. Uh, first, it all obviously depends on what your triggers are and stuff like that. But if we can find that neutrality, that's where we want to hang out because that's where we'll be able to do that work in therapy. So let your therapist know that you're ha- that you're experiencing this um, and you want to work you know, towards neutrality. You can even tell them like, hey, I talked to this. I asked a question on this podcast by a therapist and she mentioned this. Um, but that's really the best way is then to work through that trauma. And trust me when I tell you that this feeling will go away or this difficulty with the happiness feeling will go away. Now, there was a comment on this as a follow-up question. Is this the same as self-sabotage? My therapist says that I mess stuff up when it's going well because I don't think I deserve good things, which is true, but I don't feel like I'm aware of or in control of making the choices to mess it up. How can I stop doing this? This is a little bit different. So self-sabotage isn't that I feel happy, so I feel vulnerable, so therefore I cry and want to harm myself. Sabotage is kind of what you're talking about, like that I don't think I deserve good things, or if I allow good things to happen, then only bad things are going to happen, which I could see kind of that overlap with that happiness, right? If I allow those good things to happen, then maybe, maybe if you have trauma in your background, you'd be like, it's going to leave me more vulnerable to more pain and trauma and upset, then that could be very similar. But I think in the case of what your therapist is saying, because I'm going to trust your therapist, they know your story much better than I do, that you don't think you deserve good things, which you said is true, right? So it's probably a false held, falsely held belief from our past, like our parents told us that we weren't good enough, or we didn't do something enough, or Lord only knows. And so we don't think that we deserve anything good. So then we sabotage, because if we allow ourselves to have wonderful, amazing things, then we can feel like, well, then who am I? Wait, but I thought that was true, right? It's like we're challenging the the foundation of who we think we are. And so the best way to navigate this is to check our facts and to look for things that disprove that like belief that I don't deserve good things. And a lot of that's going to be healing the trauma and talking through it, but it's also going to be, you know, again, checking our facts and noticing things in our environment that don't go, that don't support that belief and questioning why we still hold on to it. And it's it's going to be difficult and it can be hard and take time, but we can change those beliefs. We can learn a new way of thinking, okay? And also, I just want to let you know that most people don't feel in control of self-sabotage. It's something we do unconsciously, but just drawing our awareness to it and kind of noticing, it might even be helpful for you to spend some time in therapy where you consider like what you did early on to lead into that self-sabotage. It might be like, uh, for instance, one of my patients, when like good things would happen, she like wouldn't follow up with them. Like, let's say she got a call back on a job and they were like, we'd like you to start. She'd 
she would like put off calling them back because like they're going to change their mind or whatever. And then they would think that she didn't want the job and they give it to someone else. And then, you know, something simple. I know it's a very simple example, but there are others that we can consider and think about like relationships and things that we do that harm us and harm what we want. So just be curious about those past experiences with self-sabotage. What did you do? What were the like early behaviors so that we can notice them happening earlier on so that we don't continue doing them, right? So then we know kind of the red flags before we're like in full sabotage mode when we find ourselves like wanting to isolate or wanting to lash out or wanting to ignore something important or I don't know uh, what your symptoms could be, but just start being curious about those past experiences so we can learn from them and not do them again. And obviously working through, you know, our own trauma past and stuff like that can be really beneficial as well, like I said. And that can maybe slowly stop that urge. But in the meantime, it's really going to be helpful for us to know those red flags early on. Okay, question number seven. It says, hey, Katie, why do I react so strongly to children crying and whining? To set the scene, I am a 22-year-old female and am dating a 25-year-old man with two little daughters, ages two, almost three, and four, who I've helped raise for the past two and a half years. When my boyfriend and I first started dating, I had so much more patience and empathy with his daughters. At the time, I was also taking a gap year from college. Currently, I'm a full-time student and I work part-time. Recently, every time the little girls start crying, I immediately get irritated and want to yell at them. I don't, but the urge makes me feel so bad and ashamed. I mean, they're just kids and of course they're going to cry and scream. I just have big emotions in general. I want to be there for them and validate their feelings, but I can't seem to even get control of my own emotions. Does this have something to do with my own unhealed inner child or am I just burnt out? Is there anything I can do to get back to a place of compassion and patience? Thank you for everything you do. I've learned so much from you in this community. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. So, okay. Um, a couple of thoughts. Number one, this sounds like burnout to me, but we'll get into the other option too, because I think it could be both of these things. Now, the reason I think it's burnout is because you had more patience and empathy earlier on, but you weren't in school. You're taking a gap year. Now that you're in school and working part-time and essentially are you know, a mother also, because you're helping raise two girls, that's a lot on your plate. And you went from having a lot of time and obviously then therefore a lot of patience to having probably zero free time and therefore not having any patience. And it can be really difficult. And that burnout can happen. uh, If you don't know, I did a bunch of videos about burnout, but one of the key symptoms of burnout is that irritation, being irritated at someone for wanting something from you. This could be your dog. This could be your child. This could be your partner. This could be someone at work. could be anything. And the reason burnout happens and just just pay attention to this. Think about this. Put this, you know, let's be curious if this is happening. Is when the effort of for what we're doing in life, our effort, isn't at least commensurate if or less than the reward that we get out of it. Does that make sense? So our reward needs to be greater than the effort we're putting in or at least balanced. And right now I have a feeling that your effort, so the reward is good. You you love your boyfriend and you love his little daughters. It's good. Your effort used to be right here. Just taking care of the girls, have a gap year. Maybe I work part-time. Now your effort in life has shot up and the reward stays the same. So slowly but surely, we're just feeling completely overwhelmed. We're taxed and overworked and essentially underpaid, you know? And so 
know that that's okay. I think almost every parent goes through this. That's why when people, you know, I feel like any mom or dad out there, any parent, if you said to them, you know, it's ridiculous if you ever felt like screaming at your children or wanting to throw something at them, they'd be like, they'd think they were a terrible parent, right? Like if you ever said that to someone, they'd be like, are you kidding me? Like every day, like they test my patients every day. It doesn't mean we act on that, but that means it's hard. It's, it's taxing. Most of my friends with children say it's like a job unlike any other. It brings them so much joy and so much suffering simultaneously. And so know that you're not alone. Getting irritated and having a short temper with children is something I think almost every parent goes through. Uh, Frankly, I think the biggest is because of the lack of sleep and the the amount of effort that's still needed to be put in to raise humans. It's It's a huge, huge, I mean, privilege, but also a huge job. You know, and that's when people say like, I'm just a stay at home parent. I'm like, not just, that's a fucking full-time, that is a full-time job, you know, like, oh, um, you're doing the Lord's work. So anyway, I think it sounds like burnout, but also I do want to address the fact that you said, could it be my own unhealed inner child? Now, if we find ourselves struggling with compassion for children all the time, the fact that yours used to not be this way is why I don't think this is it, but it could be part of it. Now, if we haven't, if we've been neglecting our own inner child and we think that, you know, he or she is like stupid and lashing out and just like so whiny and so sensitive and and we've always kind of poo-pooed her or him and told him to like shut up and sit down and like ignored, which sometimes we do, especially when we have trauma in our background where we're like, that's too much. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to deal with that. You're too sensitive. I can't help you. You know, there's nothing I can do to make things better for you. Shut up. And we do that. And I know that that sounds really aggressive, but we do that internally a lot where we just like stuff things down. It's essentially telling our inner child just to sit down and shut up. And that the fact that that's not healed for you, and that might be still a very open and raw wound, being around children that could be of the age when you were abused or harmed or the reason that you're struggling with this inner child work, to be around that age can be really triggering. And it could be you know, especially since we we have all this other stuff going on, right? Or we're working and going to school, we can find ourselves more vulnerable to those emotions as well. So I just want to put that in there too, that that could be part of it. Um, it's not necessarily one or the other, it could be both. And so really the best advice I have is therapy. And if you can't afford it or you don't have the time, I understand. But if it lets, then we'll attack the burnout. And we really need to take real time off. Like I know he, you know, has his two kids and you love him and you want to be with him, but you need like a long weekend away from all that shit. Period. And I know that you can be like, but I can't, you can, we can always say we can't, oh, I don't have time or I can't do this. Uh, you can, it's all about choices. It's all about communication and letting him know, Hey, I felt myself feeling extremely irritated and short tempered. I don't want to be that way. I think I'm really burnt out. I need a, just a weekend away. I need like two days off. I don't, you know, because it is a job. Let's not pretend being a parent is not a job. The sooner we start talking about it, like it's a job, the less people will feel judged for being stay at home parents or feeling burnt out from working essentially two jobs and you're working like three. So let's cut you some slack. You're going to need a real break and you're going to need to find ways to incorporate self-care into your daily routine. 
That means when you finish work or school, you don't go home right away. You take 30 minutes of free time for you. Maybe that's what works. And it's like you do that once a week. Or maybe it means that we need to do more breath in things, like things that are fulfilling, right? Because we need to move up that reward. So maybe that means that we um, go see our friends and really connect with them. Or we have a date night and we get a babysitter and we really connect with our boy. Like whatever it is that helps you feel filled back in and filled back up versus, you know, sucked dry from all your energy, that's going to be what what will help you sustain, what will help you push through and not feel so burnt out. And then obviously the therapy part and that component is going to be key in that inner child work. I also have videos about that if you want to watch for more information. Um, and that could be part of your self-care as well. I just know it can be difficult, but the fact that you're in school, I mean, I I'd encourage you to look into it and see if they offer it. And that could be something you could put at the end of your day. And that could be easily like two birds, one stone, working on the trauma and healing that inner child and also finding a way to take care of yourself and get some time off. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts. Now, the final question, question number eight says, hi, Katie, how do you deal with inner loyalty conflicts in therapy? Oh my God, if I got paid extra for every one of these, I'd be a rich lady. I find it very difficult to tell my therapist something about my parents and upbringing that didn't go well. I know criminal and bad things have happened, but I don't want to hurt my parents at all. I feel it's important to speak out to help myself. And at the same time, I feel like I'm betraying them. What choices should I make in this and how to deal with this loyalty conflict? Ma'am, okay, tough love therapist coming in hot. Are you ready? Why is it that we tend to want to protect people who never protected us. Why? That always blows my mind. Is it the parentified child in us? Probably. Is it the good enough mother, meaning our parents sucked ass, but they're like the best we had. So we're like, oh, I guess it's okay. And that's all we've got. So we don't want anything to fuck with it. Cause we're like, without them, I've got nothing. Like, what is it? It kills me every time. And this happens all the time where I will have patients who have this huge history of like parents allowing abuse or being the actual abuser. And we don't want to tell on them. We don't want to get them in trouble when I'm like, they're a dirtbag and they deserve to be in jail. Now I know again, that's tough love therapist. I'm going to put her away for a minute because I understand also there's trauma bonding and I have a video about trauma bonding. I was even on the podcast coffee and convos with Kale and Lindsay, um, where we talked about it, because I know Kale struggles a lot with trauma bonding. And it's really common because again, like that good enough parent where we're like, I'm just going to try to do everything they need and do everything they want so that they won't hurt me anymore. And we can bond with them as a way to protect ourselves. It's almost like fawning, you know, where we like fight, flight, freeze, fawn. If fawn is like extreme people pleasing to protect ourselves from further abuse, that could be, you know, kind of what's going on for you. And so to be truthful, um, letting your therapist know about this. I'm sure they already do. If you are, if everyone that's in the house and if you are over 18, they cannot press chart, like child abuse and stuff can't be reported. You can't report it in the past, like unless they're still, they could still be a threat to a child. So if there's still children in the home, then we'd have to report it. Does that make sense? I don't want to get too in the weeds on that, but anyways, so there are things that you can tell without knowing that your therapist is going to have to call the police or file criminal charges or anything like that. However, I just want you to consider, you know, if they did bad things, what are those laws for? And aren't they meant to protect people like you? And don't you kind of wish that someone had protected you earlier on? Or like, imagine it was happening to me or one of your best friends or something. Wouldn't you want someone to tell so that they could be protected so that it wouldn't happen? 
I know you have the sense of loyalty towards him, probably just through that trauma bonding and what we could also call Stockholm syndrome. But who are you really protecting? By protecting them, what does that protect? What are we prioritizing here? <clears throat> and I know easier said than done. And yes, it's there's always some guilt associated with uh, filing criminal cases or, or leaving you know, like I've had patients who have to leave like a younger sibling because they can't, their parents won't let them take them and they can't kidnap them. Um, and there's a lot of guilt associated with being the older one and getting out. And there, you know, there's just this, a lot of, because it's such a toxic and, and abusive environment, there's a lot of unhealthy messages that we've heard over the years and it makes things really complicated. So just be patient with yourself be kind, talk to your therapist about what's coming up for you, consider who you're really protecting and why. And part of the, like, I don't know if this will be true for you, but some of my patients over the years, and even viewers have alluded to this without maybe realizing, but they're, you're really protecting your quote unquote family unit. And even though it sucks and there was criminals, bad things that were happening and you were abused and it was terrible, there's still this hope or this, protection this, this loyalty to our family unit being like well i only have one so i need to protect it and i want to make sure nothing bad happens to them right and we can feel like we're kind of responsible for that even though we are not and if something bad happened we we can say something and that's just that's our right as a person but i know it's hard keep talking about it keep thinking about it and hopefully some of the things i said kind of shook it loose for you so you can try to make a decision that's good for you and anyone else who might be being harmed by them um i know it's hard I'm sorry, you have to deal with this. And at the end of the day, I know they're still your parents, but also, you know, they never protected you. If bad things were happening and they never protected you, why are you protecting them? Maybe journal about that. See what comes up. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope all of my answers were helpful. I know I had a couple of interruptions with Roxy barking and some, we had somebody come to the door. Um, so I hope I didn't get off topic too much there. You know how I love to talk real into, you know, I can really get off topic and go down a windy road, but I hope it was helpful. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. Ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.